No matter what your status or ability is, we all face circumstances in our lives which feel paralyzing. There is a unique experience that each one of us carries with us. Whether you are working for yourself or whether you are working for an organization, you have something already where you are the CEO of your own life. No one can take that position from you. If someone is listening to that and going, okay, how? What are the mechanics of that? What does that look like? How do I do that? Establish. Hey, it's great to have you back for another episode of Opportunity Made, where we share practical lessons to break patterns, get unstuck, and find freedom in business and life. I am your host, Katherine Lewis. If you're new with us, in each episode, my incredible guests and I will bring you empowering insights and easy to understand takeaways you can use to transform your life. You'll learn effective ways to grow as a leader, clear your success blockers, and make new opportunities, giving you a life you love. Welcome everyone to the Opportunity Made podcast. My name is Katherine Lewis. I am an accessibility champion, software engineer, and the founder of the Leon Foundation of Excellence. I am so excited today to have my beautiful friend Sam Morris on the show. Sam Morris has an incredible journey from transcontinental cycling trek leader to paraplegic to Zen warrior. His life has taken him on quite the adventure. He believes that he has been blessed with an agile mind and a spirit that is indomitable, and that these are traits that has helped him and his clients kind of cultivate their lives. Sam says that no matter who you are, no matter what your status or ability is, we all face circumstances in our lives which feel paralyzing. I can very much relate to that. And sometimes they seem to prevent us from becoming as powerful as we know that we can be. So with that, welcome, Sam. Mm. It's great to be here, Catherine. Thank you. And thank you for describing me as beautiful. I appreciate that. Absolutely. You bet. (laughs) Only only honesty on this show, right? (laughs) But really, it's, it's, it's about the soul. You know, Sam, you bring so much soul to everything that you do. And that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about Zen warrior training and your journey from who you were, what, probably 20 some years ago to who you are now as a Zen warrior trainer. It has been quite the journey and not just a journey through time, but really a journey from your head to your heart and then to your soul. Can Mm. you walk us through what that path has been like? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's an interesting time for us to have this discussion because it was 23 years ago, two days ago, two, 23 years and two days ago that I was paralyzed from the waist down in a car accident. But I'll take you back before that so that we can kind of establish who I've always been, because it's really easy, I think, to sort of look at the the accident, or I actually refer to it in, as an incident because I don't really believe in accidents. I'd prefer to look at it as an incident, but it's really easy to sort of <clears throat> frame a discussion around that particular situation and and build from there. 
But I was already a pretty well-established young adult, 24 years old, by the time the incident happened. And so I grew up on an organic blueberry farm in Maine, and I always just innately had a connection to nature. That was something that was just part of my life. I, I, it was a 200-acre farm. I spent the first few years of my life largely, you know, a lot of the time naked, running around outdoors, riding my BMX bike, eventually later riding my little motorbike. And, you know, looking back on it, it was a really peaceful way to grow up for the most part. Just having that connection with nature, lying out underneath the stars, sleeping out in with no light in the sky, no light pollution whatsoever, just staring up at the night sky and sleeping and looking at the stars and just considering the extraordinary vastness of the universe and just being in this sort of space of total awe. As we all have, we have, we've had those special experiences when we go out into the country and you look up at the night sky and it's like, wow, holy cow, you know, how tiny are we in the, and what, a, what, a, what is this mystery of life that we are experiencing? And I think that that really, those early childhood experiences really kind of informed my entire life, really. I'm still fascinated by the experience of being human by existing. I'm fascinated by existence. And over, over, over the years, I noticed that people started to sort of lose their fascination as they grew older. I started to lose some of my fascination. I started to just sort of adjust to my, my social crew, you know, my friends and, and people kind of take on their identity and they take on their sort of groups and they take on this feeling of personhood, really this sort of limited identity of who we believe ourselves to be as people within our social context, within the culture that we grow up in, within the family that we grow up in, realizing that we all kind of take on these roles in these social constructs and that as that happens or as it happened for me it felt that the magic the feeling of the magic became harder and harder to access that it sort of it's that childlike wonder started to slip away and and i was no longer having as many experiences of total and complete awe and yet there was something inside of me that kept remembering that awe and kept asking, what are we doing here on this planet? Who are, we? What, what is this? What is this experience? And I have to say that I actually look back at the time of my life in my mid-teens where I started to experiment with psychedelics as being a pivotal time for me in my own development because as I was becoming this identity with this sort of role in my social group and this role in my family and so forth, I started to experiment with psychedelics, which completely reinforced the mystery on a whole other level. Like, whoa, oh my gosh, 
like thinking I was getting into, thinking I was going to have some experiences of watching, you know, colors change and listening to music differently. Suddenly I was having these totally mind blowing experiences and go and like 16, 17 years old going, Oh my God. It's like seeing beyond this veil of consciousness and going, what is going on? What is, what is reality? What, what are we all doing here? Like really opening up the mystery. And, and eventually I discovered a few years later when I was in college, I discovered the teachings of Buddhism and Zen. And I really resonated with what I was learning from Buddhism and Buddhism I discovered was not a religion and it wasn't even really a philosophy. It was kind of like a wisdom tradition and the wisdom tradition of Buddhism and Zen was all about presence, all about being here now in this moment. And that this moment is the only moment that ever exists and that we cause our own suffering by attaching ourselves to thoughts and feelings related to the past and future. And if we can just let go of the attachment around the past and the future, then we can actually fully experience the fullness and abundance of this moment. And I was like, yes, this makes so much sense. Why aren't we all talking about this? Why is it that everyone seems to be on this hamster wheel and kind of expecting that something is going to change and that they're, they're going to be happier when they have relationship or they're going to be happier when they have more money or they're going, or why are people holding on to feelings about relationships that were over a year ago or two years ago? What is all that stuff? Because it doesn't seem to be serving us at all. And so I really tapped into the power of the summer of 99. I was 23 years old at the time. And I was in college. I was at Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts. And between my semesters of college in the summer, I would lead cycling treks. And in the summer of 1998, I led a cycling trek for a group of seventh graders around Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket. And then I led another cycling trek that same summer from Stowe, Vermont to Portland, Maine for a group of eighth graders. And then in the summer of 1999, I led a transcontinental cycling trek for a group of both boys and girls aged 15 to 19. And we, ran, we rode from Seattle, Washington to the New Jersey shore. It was about 3,800 miles. We camped every night. We cooked all our own food and we carried all our gear on our bikes and we biked an average of close to 80 miles a day. And it was wild and challenging. I mean, the physical part was probably the least challenging part for me. The most challenging part was trying to keep the sanity of nine cyclists, teenager cyclists on the road, making sure that everyone stayed alive and was well-fed and well-rested and all that stuff. And at the end of that summer, I remember thinking, wow, that was probably the biggest challenge I will ever experience in my entire life. 
And so that was August of 1999. And then only two and a half months later, I was riding in the back seat of a car driven by a driver who had been drinking and he lost control of the car on a gravel road, went into the woods, hit a tree. And I was the one who got hurt. The other two guys, the driver and my friend who was in the passenger seat did not get hurt, but I broke my back at the level of T12, which is right around the level of your belly button. And I became paralyzed from that point down when that happened. So I lost all sensation. I had a, what's called a complete, a T12 complete spinal cord injury. So I lost all sensation and all motor function from my belly button down on November 9th of 1999. And so that was when this whole new life started. I had just turned 24 at the time and it was obviously incredibly traumatic. I went from standing at six foot three to sitting in a wheelchair at about four foot 10 and having to adjust to a very, very different lifestyle. I mean, my, my legs were a big part of every day of my life, not only cycling, but snowboarding and skiing and hiking and jogging. Like I was a very active guy. I was not someone who sat around very much. So it was a real identity shift for me in many respects. And I'll pause there because I'm sure you have some questions and we can take it from there. Little did you know on that one day after you got done with all those teenagers that that wasn't going to be the most challenging thing that you did. Yeah. It was going to be like two months later. No, I, I look at it as like challenging the universe. It was like, almost like I was saying, hey, what, do you, what else you got? Like, I was able to do it. Nothing's going to bring me down, right? And they're like, okay, right. watch this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so for so really it was interesting because... I still very much found value in those teachings of Zen around presence. And yet at the same time, the challenge of my life dealing with the trauma of a spinal cord injury gave me something that was so challenging to be able to apply those principles because it wasn't like letting go of the attachment to a certain amount of money in my bank account. And I wasn't letting go of attachment to a relationship or a job or a home. It was letting go of the attachment to literally half of my body. And so it gave me such a profound experience or opportunity really to work with I mean, it didn't feel like an opportunity at the time. It, feel, it felt like very traumatic and very shocking. And I wasn't really focused on it being an opportunity. I, I have always approached just about everything in my life with a good attitude, but I wasn't exactly looking at it as an, as an opportunity. But in hindsight, looking back, it was an incredible opportunity because I got to have a real embodied experience of adaptation and of the power of neuroplasticity. And what I mean by that is the power of thought to and attitude to be able to shape your experience of reality and how 
you know, there were so many things that I had to work through on such a deeply, profoundly, in ways that I can't even describe going through that transition from really active athlete to spinal cord injured paraplegic. There were so many different things that are so impossible to even be able to articulate in terms of what that did to my sense of self and how I oriented in the world. And part of me still knew myself as me, but this other part of me felt like really kind of scrambled and dependent, for example, like to be, to, to, to become more dependent at the age of 24 than I was when I was 23 was a really strange mind game. And so I really, I look back at those experiences and there was a real gift in going through that because now, I mean, this might be sort of jumping too far forward in terms of if we're trying to do a linear timeline here, but now I'm, I, I coach and mentor people in taking the same principles and techniques that I used to navigate literal paralysis to help them with their own metaphorical paralysis in their own lives. And I can do that really effectively because I've had to do it on such a profoundly deep level with my own consciousness, with my own mind and my own body. And so I know that it's possible. I don't speak from a place of theory. I speak from a place of experience. And that experience allows me the gift of being able to work with people on a level that there's no way I could learn about this by getting a doctorate in psychology. Like it is, it is so totally different when you've experienced it yourself than when you've learned theory in school that you then try to apply. Mm -hmm. It's almost at that point, if you ever did get that kind of a degree, it's just giving you the technical vocabulary to explain what you're doing. But when you're working with people, they're going to like, they don't even care about those terms anyways. And so it's only adding value to you, not validating you. And people often use degrees to validate themselves. That's right. But the lived experience, I mean, you have decades of cutting through all the different layers of who you are, your beliefs, the trauma, the experience, the experience in the body, the experience and how it affected your mind, your relationships. I mean, you cannot get an education on all of those nuances and how they play out over time. You can't, you really can't. And I don't, it's not like I recommend anyone to go out and get paralyzed, but it has definitely been, <laughs> been a gift. You know, part of, and that what we're speaking to, there's something to not having an escape from the challenge that is so powerful because unlike many challenges, many challenges present themselves, they're, they're, everyone has challenges, of course, but many challenges present themselves in a way where the person who's challenged can find some way of navigating around it, can sort of circumnavigate the challenge and not really have to face it. So for example, like you go through some kind of a breakup 
and you feel horrible from the breakup and you go and you find yourself going out and drinking a lot and you just kind of, you sort of numb it off and then some time passes and maybe you keep drinking, maybe you don't, but you sort of have a few months and you're just kind of, you maybe you're, you overeat for a while or you have some, some way of satiating the experience of the challenge. And as a result, you never have to really face the challenge. You never really have to come to full terms with it because instead you sort of circumnavigated the lessons. It's like, oh, I'll numb myself with food or I'll numb myself with alcohol or drugs or TV or whatever, or, or just time will pass and eventually the feeling will go away. But then you end up repeating a similar pattern of behavior in a d- new dynamic, say with an, in a new relationship. And you're like, what? This is just like the old relationship. This is just like the relationship I was in before. And it's like, well, yeah, because you never actually learned from the challenge. It never was able to assimilate itself. And you circumnavigated it by finding ways of numbing yourself to it versus actually having to face the thing. And so with paralysis, it's both the curse and the blessing that there is no escape. It's like, oh, I just have to deal with this every single moment of every single day. And I can't numb myself to it. I can't escape it. It just persists forever. And so I have to change versus having the circumstances change. And that is very powerful. It's so, so, so powerful. And even with that, I love that you went through your journey and had that recognition of, okay, I need to change. But you could have stopped there. You could have said, well, let me learn how to use a wheelchair. Let me do all of the tactical things to go from being over six feet to now, you know, four feet in some and stop there. And instead, there was a moment when you decided that that was going to translate into acknowledging whatever was happening mentally and emotionally. Because you could just be an angry, paralyzed person who's just mad at the world. And yes, you know how to operate life in a wheelchair, but you didn't assimilate everything else that came with that experience. So why did you make that different choice and fully digest the entire experience? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I think that the life that I had prior to the injury I had maybe a a much greater than average experience of empowerment and freedom and maybe self-esteem on some level than maybe your average person. So I was already living very powerfully before ever being injured. And so I think to answer your question, it's really hard in a way to, to see all the internal mechanisms that contribute to a certain psychological or philosophical orientation that gets you through challenges. But looking back, I think that it's because I already had such a strong sense of self and freedom and connection and alignment even prior to my injury. So I knew 
at a cellular level inside of myself of the existence of a sense of self that was very powerful. And I knew, I think on some level that even though the trauma had sort of scrambled everything for a while, that there was a reference point that I could come back to and maybe not just come back to, but evolve into, and then actually lean into that to evolve even farther than I had prior to the incident. And so that's, it's, and, and it's a, a number of different, there's a, a, a lot of different ways of looking at this. Like when I am working with coaching someone either in person or I'm working with a team, I'm trying to find the, the memories that exist inside of us psychologically and physically where we feel most alive because those moments tend to be these sort of elusive experiences that are, seem to be hard to actually capture. And for me, where I would feel most alive, there's a really two areas that I felt most alive. One is snowboarding and one is playing music, especially with other musicians. And both of those experiences would bring me into flow state. Like when I was snowboarding, I was, I was a pretty damn good snowboarder. And I had experiences where I, everything was happening so rapidly and I was having so much fun and nature was so beautiful that my mind simply couldn't keep up with the extraordinary feeling of the moment. It's like there's just too much goodness going on for the mind to be thinking and ruminating about anything. And so I would be in this space of just pure bliss where the it's like time would just stop and I would just see sunlight and shadows and my body just moving faster than my mind could possibly keep up with and just be flying down these trails and just, you know, my body just responding in this way where I didn't know what was even going on. There's no way I could think my way through it. I just had to flow my way through it and be really like on the edge of of being out of control even, but still being in such control at the same time. And so I would be in that flow state. And so I have that as a reference inside of myself. That's what has made me feel most alive. And then playing music, like jamming, improvising with other musicians, there's a necessity, there's a pressure, what I would call a positive pressure to be so on with the beat and so on with the groove to, to play in such a way that you create something that is synergistically greater than the sum of its parts. And that's the beauty of improvised music is, or even music in general is when the musician can merge with the other musicians to create something that is like this organic whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. And when it happens, like you have to drop all thought in order to do that. And when you drop all thought, you have this moment of 
like, whoa, like what is, what is even going on? This is beautiful. This is incredible. So those flow states are, and you know, there are researchers out there and coaches out there who would all, you know, talk about this and agree with this. Stephen Kotler, Chick Send Me High, talking about flow state. And there's a lot of people now, like myself, trying to capture this state. And how do we bring this into our ordinary lives? What do we need to do to bring this into our business lives and into our personal lives? Like we can, we have that inside of us. But in our ordinary lives, it seems to be harder to capture. And my sense of why it's harder to capture is because we spend so much time ruminating. And when we're ruminating, we aren't, our minds are just not that engaged and our bodies aren't that engaged. So we have all of the same intelligence and all of the same connection, but our minds are seeking something else because it's just kind of mundane. It's like these patterns of behavior and thinking that just kind of repeat themselves. And that's what rumination is. And so when I bring meditation or breath work into a coaching session or into a corporate team, what we're working on doing is helping to break those patterns of association with the ruminating mind so that we can free up the energy and actually experiencing something exciting, even when it's an otherwise mundane moment. I don't really feel like any moment should need to be inherently mundane. (laughs) That's why, like, when we started this podcast, I'm like, let's just go. I, I don't want to do edits. I don't want to do, I don't want to even be thinking about that because I love the moment. I, and I, and I don't care. I don't have any associations with failures or like, I said something so inappropriate in a podcast the other day. And I'm like, whoops. Okay. Well, let's move on. <laughs> and it was just like, yeah, let's just keep going because it's exciting. It's exciting. It's, it's. No, that's and that it's sort of back. It goes back to that feeling of being looking up in the stars and at night and just seeing the galaxy and going, "Wow, this is amazing! Being alive is amazing." It's permission granting. You're saying, "I I allow this moment to be exactly what it is." For everyone who is listening, when Sam was talking about snowboarding or playing music, you absolutely hear how the energy completely changes. Every word gets longer and deeper, right? So I encourage everyone to think about what do you talk about in your life in that way? And that's an easy way to identify where your passion lies and where you feel so synchronously in sync. Let's put it that way, like in sync with life. For me, it's rowing. It's when I'm in the boat and I'm the coxswain. So I'm the one directing everybody. And I have to tune into every single oar, you know, and just listen to the thump. And, and we're just flying across the water and everybody is moving in the same motion, right? And so you can hear that in my voice too. So just calling out that it, those, that energetic place, that's where you want to get in touch and you want to fill your life up with as much of that as you possibly can. So Thank you so much for identifying where those moments are for you. How do you incorporate that more into your life? And is it is it now activity-based or can you summon that energy at any point in time? 
I summons at least some of it uh, on a daily basis. I'm, I'm not under no illusion that I can have those full-on blissful Satori experiences on an ongoing basis. So I probably wouldn't be as functional as I need to be if I were having those experiences all the time. By the way, I didn't know you're a coxswain. That's awesome that you did, and that you. So you still row. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Yep. Wow. Yep. Very cool. Yeah. So my primary way of connecting on a daily basis when I'm, you know, a typical work day or whatever is I do a combination of Wim Hof breathwork and meditation. Wim Hof breathwork and a, and a heart centered alignment. I really go heavy duty with the Wim Hof. I, I throw in some things that I do actually do it on a Zoom session with some of my colleagues. And I actually even turn off my camera because I just, I will move in a way that's so wild and just, I just want to get as much energy moving as I possibly can. You know, it's like I, I, we have these incredible systems. And when I say system, I'm talking about the human body energetic system. And this is part of how I coach my clients as well, is to recognize that their whole body is an energetic system. It's not just a, I, I really don't like the term meat suit because it feels very sort of condescending to the body. The body is this extraordinary, I mean, the body is doing all of this amazing stuff all the time that we don't even have to pay attention to. It's, and it's, I experience the body as an energetic antenna for consciousness. It's like, you know, even as I'm listening to you, I'm not really listening with the thoughts in my mind as much as I am listening as an energetic conduit for what's being communicated. You're communicating something to me energetically. I'm communicating something to you energetically. You were able to feel when I was talking about snowboarding, you were able to feel the way that I was using language and stretching out words. It communicated something different to you energetically that you were able to pick up on. Now, how do we pick up on that stuff? It's not because we have this knowledge base inside of our heads that goes, okay, well, he just communicated something with a stretched out word. And so that means that he must be passionate about it. So I will reflect that he was passionate about it. It's not like this robotic cognitive thing that is processing in our brains. It's a feeling. It's an experience. You go, oh, he's actually communicating something to me. We're sharing in something that is ineffable. And the reason why it's ineffable is because the cognitive word-based, verbal-based mind can't grasp it. It can work with it, but it actually, we need to, at least this is my experience, we need to train the mind to be a energetic communicator versus a knowledge-based, information-based data machine. We'll let the computers be data machines. Human beings are energetic communicators. We're communicating things to each other all the time. It's like, I can't even really tell exactly what that, like, I know what that means. Like with music, we communicate something vibrationally where it's like, I know what that means. I can't possibly put it into words, but I know what it means. There's an essence to it that is being communicated. And that essence can change in a second. And I can soften right now and communicate 
in a way that tells a different story energetically. We can use this energy to articulate thoughts and feelings in this very expressive and dynamic way. And so when I'm sort of prepping my body and my energy for the day in the morning with Wim Hof breathing and meditation, I'm activating this whole antenna so that I can be as present to all of the feelings, sensations, and everything else as I possibly can be. And to me, that in addition to doing some journaling and, you know, gratitude journaling is always helpful and sort of preparing the mind for the day ahead is always helpful, but preparing the body and the energetic system to be as finely tuned an antenna is, I think, equally, if not more important. I don't even know how to respond because I'm still on <laughs> your, your demonstration of a mechanical brain. I mean, it is just so, it's so not like that. I'll share a quick story, which is I was at a Tony Robbins event this last weekend and he's notorious My for having people. Oh, really? Okay. Well, yeah, we'll have yeah. to chat about that. It's a fantastic yeah. experience and you walk across fire. So I'm sure your friend told you about this, but if we were a meat suit, right? Let's think about putting a steak inside the oven at 500 degrees. Like it's going to react as you would expect meat to. It's going to start to char, like it's going to cook. Now, if you do it at 2000 degrees, which is the temperature of the coals we walked across, like that thing is turning black, like it's just going to smoke, right? And yet we had probably 8,000 human beings who had pure flesh walking across 2000 degrees. If we were just meat suits, like none of us would have, right? Right. Instead, right. we did the same thing you're talking about where you were priming yourself every single day. You were bringing all of your energy into this moment. You are kind of, control is not the best word, but you are telling your thoughts who's in charge and saying, this That's is right. where I'm going to place my focus. So even That's for right. us, you couldn't look at the coals. Like you had to look up into the sky to say, that's what I'm going to focus on. So that way your mind goes somewhere else. If you're a machine, you shouldn't be able to operate in that way. You would just be like, I'm walking across these coals and I'm going to burn. So yeah, it's just, once you can tune into that and you can understand it, life is just totally different, totally different. And Absolutely. I think you've been able to live that way for like, you know, many years, which is, which is beautiful. So I want to hear more about that experience. Like how, how has being in that state for so long and put you in a place where it is very different than if you hadn't operated from that knowledge that your body is energy rather than a machine. Yeah. Well, and I love that you just had that experience because you can relate to that. You can feel that you know what I'm talking about so we can be on the same page with this communication, which is awesome. And I would say that the way that I most relate to this experience is, like you were saying, it's having agency over the activity of mind. I prefer that term a little bit more than control because control can kind of be seen as controlling or like, 
like locking down on the mind versus, hey, I've just got agency. There's something else in here. There's my awareness in here. There's a self in here that has agency over all of this activity going on inside of here. And so using exercising that agency means, yeah, priming oneself and really noticing, am I in my thinking brain just analyzing my experience or am I fully present? Now, the thinking brain's ability to analyze an experience is an awesome skill. It is an awesome skill, but it's a skill. It's not us. And that's the thing that most people don't, or I shouldn't say most people. I don't know who, who's most. I don't know. Anyway, I'll just say a lot of people don't get this, that the thinking mind is not us. It is a tool. So let's look at an example so, so if I am driving to Los Angeles and I've lived in and around Los Angeles quite a bit of my life. So I know my way around the streets of Los Angeles. I know the landmarks. I know the main streets. I know the, the, the highways and so forth. And I have a map of Los Angeles in my mind. Now, of course, I don't know every landmark and I don't know every street, but I know my general way around. I can get, a, get around without a GPS pretty easily and sometimes I could probably find routes to navigate LA in a way that a GPS wouldn't even be able to know because I have all that information stored in my, my unconscious mind. I can just make those movements. Now, it's so essential that our minds can map things in the external world and have those memories of how to navigate situations that present themselves in a way that's efficient and unconscious. Because if we had to think about all of that stuff every single time we did it, it would be exhausting. We would never do anything. We would never get anywhere if our minds had to constantly map out stuff. So it's super important that we can unconsciously map our environment. And this, of course, can apply to anything, but I'll just use the metaphor or the analogy of mapping a physical environment. So it's a very important tool to be able to have. The thing is, where things run into problems is where sometimes we map our own emotional relationships to people and situations in our lives, and we identify with those people and situations in our lives, and we perfectly do the same thing. Our brains don't know the difference between when we're mapping a geographical environment and when we're mapping a relationship dynamic. And so then we have expectations about ourselves in relationship with this person. We're like, well, this is this type of person and I need to talk with them. And they said this, this, and I've still, I'm still thinking about how to respond to that because I, but that's a human being. That's a dynamic changing process. That's not a geographical location that's going to be, to be the same every single time we go to that place. It's always changing and it deserves the respect and honor to be able to be a fully dynamic expression as a human being. It doesn't map the same way that a geographical location does. And so in our minds, we end up unwittingly, it's not we knowingly do this, we unwittingly use the same mechanisms of memory to map out relationship dynamics and all kinds of other things that aren't really meant to be mapped in the same way and map our identity construct, which is what we use, we use the term ego to describe the identity construct in relation to the, our environment, in relation to other people, in relation to, to our family, our coworkers, et cetera, our friends, 
we have all of those same things functioning unless we're, we become aware of it and go, wait a minute, I've just been mapping my identity in the same way that my brain is meant to map the physical world, but it, the same rules don't apply because we are all souls. We are all dynamic. We all deserve to be able to shift and change and move and adapt. We're not meant to be the same all the time, and yet we expect sameness. And then so we, that's where things can get like we end up in arguments. Well, you didn't understand. You said that you... I thought you said this. I thought you said that. It's like, wait a minute. That's because that's a human being. They're having a different experience. They have different memories. They have different projections. And so we have to be very careful when it comes to human relationships, starting with our relationship to ourself and how we've mapped out biased behaviors as consistent with who we believe ourselves to be and biased behaviors with who we believe others to be and who we expect ourselves to be in certain social dynamics and so forth, we have to be really careful about that stuff because that actually is a form of self-abuse to be, and also you know, a, a, a bit of a kind of a dynamic of abuse. And even we don't look at it as the type of abuse of like verbal or physical abuse, but on some level it's still kind of abuse because it's not honoring the sanctity and autonomy and dynamic nature of the human mind and spirit to be able to constantly evolve. Wow. 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 Oh my goodness. So many things in there. I can feel myself changing in this moment, just listening to what you said. I want to know, is there another level in which we can experience life? And what I mean by that is we have the physical level, we have the mental level, we have the emotional level, we could even say spiritual. I know what those feel like. I know when I feel pain on those levels, when I feel joy on those levels. But for some reason, this mapping that you're talking about, I feel like gets something that's like even more in between one of those experiences. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those, a lot of those emotional experiences that we go through, a a lot of what occurs inside on an internal level is the processing of our internal experience with the projections of our imagination, expectations, all of these different criteria, which we mostly unconsciously choose and project into our reality that ultimately are creating something that is sort of processing because it's a lot of it's not really necessarily accurate. Some of it is based in memory of past experience, projection about hypothetical future outcomes, biased explanations that we've created inside of our minds of why something happened and why something else might happen or did happen. All of this stuff that if you really look at it, it's like the mind is just trying to keep up with all of this stimulus that's created in our experience of life. The human interaction component is forever dynamic and changing. It doesn't map in the same way as 
certain sort of familiar things in the physical world, the physical, it's like, and it would be weird if every time I drove to LA, it was a totally different place. I would have to figure that out every single time and go, Oh my God, okay, I got to start fresh. I thought I knew this place, but now I have to start fresh. And so we use the resources of our minds to try to make things as easy and as efficient as possible by mapping things into the unconscious. But the problem becomes when we try unknowingly map our own sense of self and our sense of others in ways that are inaccurate and not really helpful. Yeah. And so I don't know if that fully, it probably, there's no way that that can fully answer your inquiry, of course, but that's just the, the piece that I'll toss in there. Yeah. And I so appreciate it. And now it's like, okay, what, what do we do with that? Right. Because if our brains have this default mechanism where we see the sameness in all these things, but then when it comes to our dynamic relationships, they're different. There still is a bit of sameness. Like we, we, you know, every time that I see you, you're going to be Sam, right? And so I can always call you Sam, mm-hmm. but one day you mm-hmm. might be happy. One day you might be sad. You might be 15 different emotions at once. And yesterday when you said one thing, it actually means something different today. How do I not become overwhelmed by that or feel like, oh my gosh, how can I, what am I supposed to expect? Like this just feels chaotic. How do I actually be so in that moment where it's like, all right, Sam, I'm ready. Who are you now? And you get to reveal that to me. That's a fantastic question. And the term that comes to mind that is something that we can really work on is a self-reliant autonomous sense of self that is okay with whatever. So what I mean by that is, yes, there are certain characteristics, personality traits, etc., physical characteristics, etc., that as I get to know Catherine, my mind is, of course, mapping as the Catherine, as the, 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 what is the term? There's a, the avatar of Catherine. My mind is creating an avatar of Catherine inside of itself to, to know an idea of Catherine that allows us to be able to interact in an efficient and productive way and not just be totally lost. So it's important that we have a certain amount of that that we can do. And at the same time, if I have expectations of you that are coming from unmet needs that I have in myself for you to be a certain way in relation to me, then I am putting a pressure on you that you didn't ask for and you don't deserve. And so it's up to me to find my self-reliant sense of autonomous connection to myself where Catherine can be anything Catherine is and Catherine can be the full dynamic expression of Catherine in this moment in whatever way that expresses. And it's not going to shake my core and throw me off and make me be like, why did Catherine do that? Like Catherine can do whatever Catherine wants to do. That's giving you the honor and respect to be as fully human 
as you are, and I'm okay. I'm autonomous, self-reliant, connected, safe. And I think that this is where this is, it, it's so ancient inside of ourselves. It comes from where we were infants and we looked for consistency in our parents to be the same basic person over and over and over again, because any inconsistencies made us feel unsafe. And I think that, you know, frequently adults who have certain personality disorders and so forth, those personality disorders frequently were were born out of an inconsistent dynamics with their parents. So they didn't really know what they were going to get. And so they adapted to sort of manipulating their experience and manipulating the way that they talked and their behaviors to be able to manage their environment and manage the people in their world in order to feel like they were in control. But there is a world beyond being in control. There's a world of finding a fundamental sense of safety where I don't have to manipulate anyone or anything. I can actually establish my energetic sense of safety by reaffirming my connection with my body and the earth primarily. My body is, right now there's nothing happening in my environment that I have to be afraid of. It's light coming in the window, light reflecting on the wall behind me. There's this microphone in front of me. I'm connected energetically with my body to the earth. I'm good. I don't have to control anything. I am fully safe just as I am in this moment. And there's nothing that you could do or say to harm me. And there's nothing that you could do or say that would embarrass me because I'm good. I'm safe. I'm here. I'm just present. I'm good. So that's that's something that it's so funny because it's so insidious and and it happens so early in our childhood development that we take on these traits that we don't even recognize unless years down the road there's some sort of dysfunctions in our lives that we like why is that pattern keep coming up why is this thing keep happening in my life well maybe we're doing it to ourselves because We haven't learned how to be fully autonomous and aligned with our energy in our body in the moment without needing to manipulate something or have expectations of something that we think is going to, that we think is necessary that actually isn't necessary, which is where the Buddhist principle of attachment comes in attachment creating suffering. If I'm attached to anything, outside of myself, including any behavior that anyone does for me to feel a sense of safety, well, I'm going to be disappointed because reality is not going to live up to my expectations. Sam, I just learned something because as you were talking, you said so many good things and I was like, oh, I want to be able to circle back to that and that and that. And I want to remember them, right? And so the as you were speaking that last bit of attachment, I realized, wow, I'm actually trying really hard, even as we're recording this this podcast, to remember these certain points that I want to make. And there's extra tension in my body 
trying to hold on to that attachment to these things that I want to say. Right. And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you for That's fantastic self awareness, by the way. Uh, thank fantastic you. Fantastic self awareness. Yeah. Because I think what you're alluding to is when we can, if we don't have that attachment and we're just present to that moment, like I doubt that I would lose those thoughts. Or if I did, I know that whatever needs to be said is what will be said. And sometimes people are afraid if they're not attached to things, like they'll, it's a loss. But actually, it's an allowance, allowing for what really needs to be there to be there. Because sometimes we're attached to things that like we do not need. They do not serve us. And so if we can let them go, we'll actually see the beautiful things that are called to us. So thank you again. It's beautifully articulated, Catherine. Yeah, beautifully articulated. Absolutely an allowance. I love that. Yeah, it's not a loss. It's an allowance. It's a it's a what's now. And and I think that there's this sort of fear that we have of not having something of substance, something to say, or something, the thing. You know, that even that term awkward silence, I'm like, there's no such thing as awkward silence. How could there ever be such a thing as awkward silence? There's only human beings feeling awkward when they experience silence because there's this sense of, oh, I've got to have just the right thing to say. I've got to sound smart. I've got to sound, all of that stuff is just the same stuff that we were doing as babies and children trying to fit in with our environment with our parents like oh i better behave i better do the thing just right to get to gain the approval like i invite you to not gain my approval at all for the rest of this podcast and for the rest of our entire relationship here on earth as long as i know you i invite you to never need to gain my approval about anything <laughs> and, and and that's that's such service to another human being when you can just say no like just be here with me, right? And I think we can connect on a greater level when we're not trying to fill the space or get the approval or expect certain things to be a certain way. And it's just, just be here with me now. So I invite you to play if you're open and we can challenge listeners. Can we just have a moment of quote unquote awkward silence? Absolutely. I'll take it. All right, it. let's do this. Thank you, Sam. Mm. Welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. I invite anyone who's listening to just feel that. Like what, what happens in your body when you feel that? What happens in your mind? Is, there, is the mind racing to find the end of the silence? Is it, is it feeling like, okay, when's this going to be over? When is there something else to listen to? It's like... There's nothing wrong with that. That's just a brain doing what a brain does. But just notice it and notice if does that happen, for example, when you're talking to your significant other. So they sometimes say, I feel unheard by you because you were actually racing to have them finish their what they had to say so that you could say what you had to say. Like it's happening so much all the time. And so this is the value of slowing down and of releasing these expectations and projections that we have 
And if we could only just realize how much more we could actually accomplish, both in personal and professional dynamics, if we just slowed down enough to actually listen to what's happening without needing to rush forward and without needing to prove ourselves or be approved of by anyone. It's actually the most efficient thing that we can possibly do. And it also feels good. I love that you leaned into efficiency because I find being very stereotypical, but in those moments when myself or we just have general personality types where they want to be efficient. So in moments when I want to be efficient, I'm thinking ahead and and I'm jumping ahead of what the person's saying because I just got to get to my point. I need to wrap this conversation up or I need to make my point. And it's the opposite. As you mentioned, that efficiency is in slowing down and everybody feeling heard and energetically received, even though not everybody is aware that that's happening. That is, I think, a process that's taking place when we're listening to each other is energetically receiving what's happening for the other person in this moment. And that's how you can not have expectations and you can allow the other person to be dynamic. I noticed when we had that moment of silence, I'm just getting to feel more of you. It it was filled up. It wasn't empty silence, but it was filled up with you and your presence rather than sounds and words. And I think we don't always realize it, but we can learn so much more information about the other person, what they really want to say, if we can just feel their presence rather than listen to words. Amen. Amen. 100% agree with that. And I totally relate to what you're talking about in terms of efficiency and this tendency to drive to the the thing, to get to a finish line, to get to the thing that is ahead of where you are right now. And I used to have to learn about that. I still do sometimes if I'm, because I do adaptive skiing now. I used to do adaptive, I used to do skiing and snowboarding. Now I do adaptive, I sit ski. And if I am focused on a turn too far ahead, if I'm focused on some sort of thing that is, and I'm trying to get to that thing and my mind comes off of the focus of the present moment, I am going to crash. It's just going to happen especially as there are more variables or I'm moving more quickly, then my body has to adjust more quickly as well. And with, in, as those variables increase, it becomes even more important to focus on the present moment because as those variables increase, there's more that the body and mind and whole system has to take in. Same is true for if I'm playing with a band playing music, if I am having to be with all of these different variables of rhythm and harmony and melody and so forth, and I am trying to be efficient in my playing versus present, I'm going to, you're going to feel it in my playing. It's going to be rushed. And one of the most embarrassing things for most musicians is to listen to recordings of themselves and go, oh my God, my timing was so off. And it takes a real skill to not rush with playing music, to actually be in the rhythm, in the pocket, as they say, 
finding that pocket, finding that groove and being in that space requires a type of surrender versus ambition. Ambition is just going to be your worst enemy. And we talk about ambition as though it's this great thing that we should all have ambition. I am nothing, I'm not opposed to ambition as a principle, but if ambition is leaking into every aspect of your life, you're probably going to be irritating other people and irritating yourself and actually being less efficient than you might otherwise be because you're letting ambition run versus presence. Very well said. That was beautiful. You have a blog post that's on living backwards. Can oh you- yeah, I wrote that years ago. Yeah. Remind me, remind me what that's all about. I like the, I like the title. (laughs) Yeah. You like it? Someone, someone wrote it. I don't know who it is. (laughs) Okay. So on your site, sendwarriortraining.com, you have, we're living backwards, which is a blog post. And I want to read a little bit of it. It says, one of the most common problems I see with people is what I might call struggle without context. It's the tendency to become absolutely consumed with challenges which feel meaningless when our present day problems seem to be preventing us from living the lives that we believe we deserve to be living. This existential pain feeds on itself until an emotional reaction of some sort ensues, providing what feels like temporary relief, but which is in fact only a release valve for feelings which creates more problems than it solves. Every attempt to deal with challenges in this manner ends futilely. And then you're talking about how you attribute this anxiety-producing struggle to living backwards, where most people experience the present moment as a byproduct of their past experiences, including all the stories and judgments that they've told themselves over the years about who they think they are and how they either fit in or don't fit into the world. And our minds are associating as, most of what our minds are associating as the self is actually this complicated and paradoxical mismatch of thinking that have been created for us to try and understand the world since the time we were born. But what if it's backwards, right? What if it's backwards? Yes. What if we are actually our future selves pulling us in the direction of our destiny versus our past selves pushing us to where we are right now? Absolutely. Yeah. And that takes, and thank you for reminding me about that. I had forgotten about that blog. It resonates as true today as it did at the time that I wrote it. Yeah, this, and this is something that I really try to orient around on a daily basis because I have already been my past self. I have already had my past experiences and the memories that I have from the past that will serve and that are memories that I would prefer to use to, for wisdom, they're going to be there. There's no way that they can't be there unless I develop dementia, which I hope I don't. But assuming I don't, I, or at least that it will. Yeah, may that not be life's like next challenge for you. Yeah, right. I'm like, please universe, don't, <laughs> don't, don't listen too closely to that. Yeah. As it's, it's, not necessary for us to keep recreating our identity from the past. It's really, if we want to have more fulfilling lives, then 
being more intentional about where we're going and then letting that self, like really going into feeling that self, what does that self feel like? Because that self is actually, whether we know it or not, it's already magnetizing our experience. We, as energetic beings, if we think about what energy is, it's magnetic. It is a magnetic quality. When we talk about someone having a magnetic quality, we are actually referring to something as a magnetism, an energetic vibration that actually does physically and energetically have a magnetic quality to it. So as we imagine that which we wish to be, then we can align with that and we can let the circumstances of our lives orchestrate whatever needs to be orchestrated for that experience to be embodied. So this is something that I'm working with as part of my priming practice every day, because if I'm not, then I'm feeling like I'm going to be, it's going to be a sort of a sluggish mind, like, oh God, okay, another day. I gotta, you know, this whole like, all right, you better just get on it and get the things done that I need to get done. That's not very inspiring. Like that doesn't animate me in any kind of way. Like, <laughs> Why would I even want to do those things? Let's, why not just give up? Why not just live a simpler life and, you know, whatever, play video games if I'm, if I'm like going to really have that kind of sluggish behavior. But that's just the absence of something magnetically pulling me, a future self magnetically pulling me in its direction, where if I connect with that, which I really most want to be, that which will make me feel most alive. And I go, okay, well, Every moment of my day now is in alignment with that magnetic self of the future pulling me in its direction. That's a very different way to show up and work. It's a very different way to show up in relationship because I'm looking from a place of potential versus from a place of the past, which is already expired potential. If we look at what the past is, it's, it's, it's the expired potential. It's not actually real potential. Potential can only exist as something that has not yet been created. And if one says, I've reached my potential, like, yeah, right. <laughs> like, like there's, we are, I'm never going to reach my potential. Like if I would love to have the sort of athleticism of Tony Hawk and the open heart of Jesus Christ and like the, the, the funky grooves of James Brown, I, those all exist as potential. I'm not living those ways right now. So there's always going to be something in my life. So if I think I'm living at my pen potential, well, yes, I am for now, right now, but, and, and it's important to recognize that I'm living in my potential right now, but that potential has to keep moving. It has to keep evolving. Otherwise, I'm, I'm going to grow disinterested in life. And so that's the, that's the living backwards piece, because if we can orient around that which we are always becoming, what a totally different and, and way more inspiring way of orienting than orienting around who we think that we've always been. Absolutely. And I, this is what you do with your training, right? You talk about being in the past is your soul resume. The future is your soul destiny. And right now is soul performance. And I believe you help people 
to flip the script so they're not living backwards and be pulled forward by their potential, but being so super present that they still are reaching the next piece of potential and the next and the next because they're focused on that soul performance. And I appreciate you bringing that model in to the conversation because I don't also, I don't want to also be dismissive of past experience as well. So there's a fine line between identifying with past experience and being dismissive of past experience. So the past experience is something like when I use the term soul resume, it's something that has a lot of potency to it because there is a unique experience that each one of us carries with us that no one else in the world can, can copy. And that has given us insights and wisdom and connection in a way that no one else has exactly that same type of experience. And so if you're someone who is looking to figure out, well, I, I want to sense my value more. I want to feel my sense of, you know, we, ter- we use these terms, purpose, meaning, value, et cetera, all these kinds of things like that. If you really want to sense that, then look at that past, look at that soul resume and go, what is it that has always been alive inside of my life that has been, that is so unique and who are the people who I can serve from that orientation and what I have gathered, what I've, if you can really identify that and then you look at what you want to do with that to shape a future that you have not yet shaped, that's where you've got a niche that no one can fulfill except for you. And that niche is an incredible asset whether you are working for yourself or whether you are working for an organization, you have something already where you are the CEO of your own life and no one can take that position from you. So that I just want to make sure not to be dismissive of past experience because that past experience has a ton of value. It's just not identifying with all of the unconscious beliefs and so forth from the past, which are no longer serving this future self who you wish to become. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really important thing. You have to validate the experiences that have already happened. Well, having kind of a parallel mind, these two different pieces of yourself, one is validation and saying, thank you so much. You know, all the pain, the challenges, the hurt, the joy, the pleasure, all of that is beautiful and has made me to be who I am. So I validate it and I thank you. And let's move on. You know, like let's, 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 you can also go to the other side where you let go and you continue to operate at your next highest level for this current moment. And, and this, yes, absolutely. And if someone is listening to that and going, okay, how, what are the mechanics of that? What does that look like? How do I do that? What we were talking about earlier in our discussion about priming is how you do that, because it is the priming of the energetic, physical, mental vessel of your energy and your connection. It's that priming experience that every day you don't have to figure out how to do it if you're priming. 
Like if you're actually really priming yourself and you're connecting emotionally to that which you want to become and you're connecting physically and energetically to your body, the rest will work itself out. The rest will work. itself. You don't have to obsess over it at all. It's really just like the obsession over it just creates more problems. So it's like I had a mentor one time that I, I loved this piece of advice. She says, she said, look, if you're going to make a, a pie and that's your intention to make it a pie, you put the ingredients in the pie pan and you put it in the oven. You don't have to keep checking the pie every 10 minutes to see if it's cooked properly. You just leave it in the oven. So if you're priming, if you've created the recipe and every day you're working on energetic connection and alignment with yourself through breath, meditation, these non-mental, it's really a more of a physical and energetic orientation, then the rest will just fall into place in the way that you need it to fall into place. You'll be intuitively drawn in the direction that you need to be drawn in because you're actually increasing your relationship with the magnetic field that is your energy. Did you actually perform those different activities and analyze maybe a certain order or a certain length of time in which they maximize you feeling centered in this moment? Is there a strategy behind creating your priming process or is it just do any of these activities, whatever feels good, doesn't matter? I think more importantly, um, and I think there's actually some neuroscience research to actually back what I'm saying right now. I don't think this is entirely subjective that the the data around neurobiology shows that whatever you can be consistent with is more important than a certain length of time. So for me, you know, I might do a 25 minute long priming practice on a daily basis. For some people, the notion of doing 25 minutes of breath work and meditation might seem undoable right now. Where it's, but it's like, well, three to five minutes. Yeah, three to five minutes. I guess I can fit that in before I send the kids off to school or whatever. You know, if you don't have any kind of practice, then having at least something that you can do on a regular basis is better than trying to do something that is overdoing it and then missing several days and going, ah, oh, man, I really meant to be doing, I guess I'm a total failure with that. I can't implement that. I, I, and then it sort of fades into the background and then you're back on doing your normal thing. And you're like, ah, I remember hearing about that. I remember trying that one day. It didn't really work for me. Well, whatever you can do that is, you know, in business, we use this term, the MVP, the minimum viable product. If you can do the minimum viable product three to five minutes or something like that on a consistent daily basis, you're unconscious mind will start to recognize that this is now your life. This is now a habit that you do on a regular basis. And then from there, it's actually relatively easy once you have a habit established, the basic habit to start to add a little bit more to it. You know, maybe you want to go 10 minutes. Maybe you want to go 15 or 20 at some point but not because you thought that there was a certain amount of time that you had to hit that number in order to feel successful. Atomic habits also reinforces this as well, though by James Clear. 
that's an incredible book because it's talking about exactly this principle, the least amount that you can possibly do to remind your subconscious on a daily basis that this is the new you. Then you can begin to make the tweaks and adjustments and extending that time if you wish to. But as long as it becomes so routine that you don't even have to think about it, that is what we're going for. Just like I don't have to think about whether or not I'm going to brush my teeth in the morning. I go into the bathroom and it's one of the first things I do is brush my teeth. If I had to think about it, you know, it's like, oh, I haven't brushed my teeth in a week, you know, whatever. I should probably brush my teeth for 25 minutes because I haven't brushed my teeth in a week. It doesn't really work that way. (laughs) As long as I do a daily basis for a short amount of time, my teeth are going to stay clean. Same is true for meditation or breathwork practice or, or anything that primes the body and energy. That was really nice. Thank you for walking through that. And it's funny, I had an image in my mind as you were talking. Did you ever eat or have you seen the gummies that are like mini fries or mini burgers or something like that? Gummies that are mini fries and mini burgers? Mm-hmm. Like cannabis gummies? Oh, well, sure. Or, or, just, or, just, just, or just gummies. I don't, I don't recall mini fries or mini burger gummies. Okay. I don't think so, I've seen these. They, they exist out there like they have the mini Cokes and the mini pizzas and whatever. And the thought process that came to my mind, and, and more than just the thought, it's going to be challenging for me to put the feeling that I had into words. But it was almost like, you know, you have a, let's say, like a giant burger and you zoom out as you're moving, it get, it becomes this little tiny gummy one. Or maybe we take the world and as you zoom out, it becomes a little marble. But it's this feeling of having power over your habits or the way that you want your life to be. And so I could just imagine myself saying, okay, I want to become a bodybuilder. Well, that's like a really big thing. And I'm going to have to be in the gym many, many hours lifting all of these things that make me feel, you know, tired and and that hurt. Right. But what if you just had like a little tiny weight and you just say, okay, I just need to pick this up every single day. You know, like, this is, this is ridiculous. This is so dumb. But if you were to do that with and you have a representation for that little weight that you need to pick up, or maybe the drop of water that you're going to drink, or you know whatever those habits are, and you just went through a silly exercise like that, but ingrained mentally in every single day, I pray, I drink, I work out, whatever those habits are, then as you're saying, you start to expand them out. And so now maybe the drop of water is like a little tiny glass all the way out until it's 64 ounces or 100 ounces, it's not going to make a difference to your brain because you already have that practice of I drink water, I work out. It's almost like caveman, like I do this, we do that, you know? Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, In Atomic Habits, the piece of advice is to, if you say, for example, want to go to the gym every day. Those who just start going to the gym for an hour and a half out of nothing, going from nowhere to an hour and a half to the gym, they most, most often are going to fail within the first few weeks. They're going to find something comes up they're going to stop going and it's going to derail them from that intention. Whereas if instead of, if you have that intention to go to the gym every day, what you actually need to do is start by training your brain to do the most minimal thing that you can do on a daily basis. 
So if you, for example, put your jogging shoes next to your door and you do that every single day, then it triggers the brain that there is, this is the time that you go and do this thing. And then your, so your brain actually starts to pick up little tiny habits, just like you were saying, you just articulated it perfectly with that metaphor. This is actually how the brain works. It doesn't work by going, okay, I've accomplished this big thing. It doesn't know the difference between accomplishing some big thing and accomplishing a small thing that it then memorizes as a minimum viable habit that you can build on. And so it's super important to do this. Otherwise, what will tend to have it happen with failed goals because the goals were too big. They were too audacious. And then when you fail, then you have to go through the whole process of feeling like a failure. And then that then programs itself into your mind that in the next time, then you not only have the inspiration to improve, you also have to work against the counter idea that you were a failure the last time you did this that is now part of the subconscious orientation around that thing. So it's actually not just, it's not being like, this is actually serious stuff because if we can build on those little tiny incremental habits over the course of a much longer period of time, we are so much more likely to be successful in doing what we need to do then if we take on something big thinking, well, bigger is better and then find ourselves failing and then having to start again with that perceived fail in the recesses of your subconscious. So as we are approaching the new year and the resolutions that people put out there, this is a super important thing to keep in mind because most resolutions fail because they are trying to bite off more than you can chew. So if you're trying to you know, give up eating a certain food or whatever, do it in incremental steps versus trying to do some kind of major thing and then having it backfire on you. I love how it was like, hint, hint, like the new year is coming. <laughs> but it's so true. And I'm really inspired by this. Like, I just want to write down what are all of the habits that I want to change and then find the smallest fit. So like, if I don't want to eat sugar anymore, just take out a grain of sugar every single day, put it on my countertop and like flick it into the trash, you know, just as small and as minimal as I possibly can, but just to incorporate it into my life. This is so awesome. I know for me, it's definitely a game changer. It's super important. It's like less is more. We hear that phrase, less is more, but in this context, less really is more the least amount that we can possibly do and do it habitually, the better off we will be in the long run. And it's so much kinder to ourselves as well. You know, there's actually science around the dopamine system in our brains. And a lot of people think of dopamine. You may have heard of dopamine as related to the feel. You know, we talk about having dopamine addictions with cell phones and so forth. Dopamine is actually what it is more so than the feel-good chemical. It's a motivation. It's a motivational chemical. It's the thing that gets us off the couch and gets us to actually go do something that we know that we need to get done because we anticipate a reward of doing that thing. 
So without dopamine, we don't motivate. So dopamine is essential for motivation. And when we are, say, for example, the most common sort of misuse, if you will, not that I'm judging really, but, you know, it's not particularly functional, is when we are using cell phones, the then are the receptors in our optical nerves that are taking in the information of the cell phone scrolling is something that creates a dopamine response where we have an anticipation of a reward for scrolling more. So if I'm scrolling on my cell phone, it's because somewhere in my brain, it's looking for that puppy video that is so cute and it's like oh this is totally worth the scrolling oh my god this is great it's awesome well now we've just that's great that there was a wonderful puppy video but we've now used up some of our dopamine to have that experience of the puppy video from the scrolling so it's the anticipation and reward that is related to dopamine like as soon as the reward it comes it's like yay but then we want more. We want, oh, where's the next puppy video? Then we want more. We, this is the same reason slot machines work. The reason why the slot machine has the thing that goes around and around and around and around, and around is because our eye's visual cortex will take in the infor- take in the spinning and it will be going, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Oh! Ah, and we either get a reward or we get a disappointment. And so that's how that works. So it's when, when the, when we can complete a domain cycle, there's a term for this that I'm, I can't remember exactly the name of the term for it right now, but we can actually create these same cycles with, through doing things that we know we want to do more of and actually taking in the sense of accomplishment that we have done it. Andrew Huberman in his Huberman Lab podcast, which I highly recommend to anyone out there, it's amazing neurobiology for practical purposes. He says, if you see a dirty coffee cup on your counter and you want to keep your kitchen cleaner, you notice that dirty coffee cup. And if you take that coffee cup, put it in your sink, you wash it out and put it in the dish rack, you have now gone, you have now completed a dopamine cycle, you, but you have to feel that sense of reward that your brain has taken that, you know, your brain and body have taken that coffee cup, cleaned it up, put it in the dish rack, full cycle, full circuit, the dopamine circuit, I think is what it's called. So we can apply this in little ways that we might see as being irrelevant that are all around us at any given time. Oh, I like, I just kind of toss my clothes next to my bed when I go to bed and I don't like that I have a messy room. Okay. If I actually fold my clothes and put them away and acknowledge myself for doing so, now I've just trained my brain in a healthy way to complete a a healthy dopamine circuit. And so establishing it, the brain doesn't know the difference between a little job well done and a big job well done. The fact of the matter is it's actually knowing so that you can in, have a sense for more of a sense of accomplishment of goals. And I think a lot of times we, we overlook just how much we are actually accomplishing in these little mundane ways all the time. And in a sense, we almost miss an opportunity to 
actually experience the completion of that dopamine circuit. Like, oh, oh, okay, I just paid that bill. I'm going to take that in. It might not seem like a big thing, but if you actually acknowledge yourself for doing so, especially if it's something that you want to improve on, then that acknowledgement actually builds in more of the habit because now you want more of that. Now you want to feel, oh, I want to pay this bill. I want to pay this bill. Next thing you know, all your bills are paid and you're, you didn't even struggle to do it because you were acknowledging yourself instead of bashing yourself for doing it and then not acknowledging yourself, not appreciating it. I love this as someone who doesn't celebrate themselves enough because I'm like, okay, great. We did that onto the next thing. I definitely want to leverage this to just complete that cycle and continue to reinforce anything from the work that I'm doing or, you know, any, any habits that I want to reinstill in my body. Like maybe it's every time that I relax my shoulders, you know, I notice they're uptight and then relax and just be like, Oh, okay. So I see this as a tool where you can get very specific in making a lot of growth by just closing that cycle. I I love what you just shared because this is, I find working with a lot of high achieving types of people, this is a common shadow of the high achiever is we have these judgments and expectations of ourselves where, of course I did that. Like, why would I? Why would I acknowledge myself? Of course, I, I need to be doing like need to be doing more. Need to be doing more. I'm always doing more. I'm I'm a I'm a guy, I'm a person who gets things done. You know, da, da 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 This is just part of my life. Yes, that's true. It's great that you can be a person that gets things done. But if you're not actually pausing to receive and acknowledge the thing that you are actually doing, and you're having these judgments and expectations, that of course then actually on a neurobiological level, you're actually squelching your ability to do more. You could be actually doing more and doing it in a more inspired way simply by training that dopamine circuit to be more, to to complete by having that moment, that pause moment to go, yeah, I did that. Great. It seems like a lot of what we're saying here is, is living backwards right to actually go faster we need to slow down to actually do more we need to stop and celebrate absolutely there is a paradoxical nature to reality that is important to see because if we don't see the paradoxes we miss out on some important wisdom that's right in front of our nose that was beautiful Sam, I want to make sure we get you out of here on time. So if people would like to continue the conversation with you, how can they connect? You can feel free to email me at sam at zenwarriortraining.com and I'm happy to reply to any email I get. Or you can follow me on the socials. I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Sam Morris and Zen Warrior Training. My website is zenwarriortraining.com. Beautiful. And is there any final words that you'd like to share with listeners? Maybe share a final awkward silence. Okay. I'm down with or that. not you ready? so awkward silence. Not so awkward <laughs> silence. <laughs> All right. Share a final moment of silence. Yeah. Thank you, Catherine. It's been great being here with you today. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for being present. Thank you for bringing your light and your wisdom and your story. I am just truly excited to have this out there. I know that 
uh, it was a game changer for me just being in this conversation. So again, thank you.